Well, in our text today, we encounter two people who are divided by just about every cultural barrier you can think of, every cultural prejudice you can dream up. Race, religion, socioeconomic power, you know, prestige and comfort levels, and just for good measure, thrown in there is potentially sexuality. Or at a bare minimum, there's a lifestyle choices that position these two apart so that they can't share uninhibited fellowship. And yet at the end of this encounter, they are united at a level that has just loved across and transformed across all their differences. They started out complete strangers. They started out with all these barriers, these unspoken barriers. And by the end of it, they end up brothers. They're not just friends, they're family. David Bisgrove remarks about this, hey, whether you're a Christian or not, you look at this story and you say, why can't we do that? Isn't, isn't this the way we should be? A community of difference, a community with difference that is united in something greater than our differences. We've started this small series called Conversations with Culture where we're looking at how Christians, uh, as Christians, we can have conversations that, that lovingly hold out our worldview into a culture, if you like, that has consigned Christianity, consigned our worldview as being unhelpful, harmful, even hateful uh, towards human flourishing. The agreed common ground that we, we once shared, that we once assumed, that the, a strong and healthy culture sort of looked like, we had, we had some common agreement there about what that was, has long washed away. And we now live in essentially a post-Christian culture in Australia, if you can believe that. And I think there's three basic ways to react to what's going on. There's three basic ways to react to this. One is just to receive it, just to go, oh well, let's just embrace it and do whatever it washes over us. And join with this progressive culture and just try and make it as good as we can. A second is just to rage against it and just outwardly reject everything that it, it puts forward in this culture. And I think neither of these responses is actually biblical. A third response, a third way, there's, there's always a third way, is to redeem culture. It's to hold a position that allows for us to see uh, the good of a culture. All cultures always have some good element that changes us, even us, for the better. And to be able to see that and to be able to perceive that and not completely reject everything. A contemporary example of this is how people who, who feel distress about their gender identity are now actually able to openly speak honestly about these struggles, about these feelings, without an inaccurate and dehumanizing caricature over that real Feeling is something that the church has struggled with. So, so along comes culture and, and we learn a little bit from it. There are things about culture that we can celebrate. However, there is a lot about culture, a lot about our 
current culture from a biblical perspective that we should rightly grieve, that we should hold out another alternative to. That's what Jesus is speaking about in the Beatitudes in Matthew's Gospel. Blessed are those who grieve. Blessed are those who mourn. And he's not talking about being sad because your cat died or some kind of personal loss. This is about being profoundly sad and profoundly uh, concerned about what sin is doing to culture, what sin is doing to God's good world, to his image bearer. The West is a culture that lives downstream of some powerful revolutionary changes to what it means to be human, to what it means to be the image bearer and how that humanity is best lived out. And like most revolutions, it takes few prisoners, has no tolerance of resistance. In other words, as Dr. Albert Moller points out, our cultural revolution demands total acceptance of its claims and affirmation of its aims. It just crushes anything that, that, that comes against affirmation and acceptance. Some of the revolutionary forces that have shaped the air that we now breathe are the, the sexual revolution that demanded that our bodies are our own, essentially, and for us to enjoy in whatever way we want. The outworking of this idea led to the unchallengeable assumption that sexual freedom and expression is the highest standard of personal fulfillment and identity. Another profoundly powerful current we now swim around in is relativism, which says that, that meaning and truth are relative. So whatever's right for one can at the same time be completely wrong for another. Relativism denies that there's any one right way to understand the world. And any attempt to suggest an, an overarching narrative is just some grab for power. It's just some grab to oppress. You know, it's the opioid of the masses. It's, it's just some power struggle. Pushing us further out into the water is radical individualism. Everybody gets to write their own script. This is the rip in the water created from relativism. An individual self-perceived self-construction expression of life as the ultimate liberation. The greatest sin in our current culture, the greatest sin, therefore, indeed the only sin is to judge someone else, to say, hey, that is actually harmful or dangerous or, or, or no way to live. To express concern based on what you hold as right is hateful, is bigoted, and just plain grinchy. This cultural wave has eroded and washed away common ground by deconstructing what were objective uh, social norms and insisting that we reconstruct them out of uh, current, these current revolutionary ideas of our current social movement. This is the controlling culture of the conversation that is now faced by Christians who themselves are committed to an uncompromising faithfulness to the Bible as the word of God and the gospel as the only message of salvation, as the only message of human flourishing. How do we speak into a culture that is... Uh, oppositionally different 
that celebrates no common ground, that sees your grief and concern as merely hatred and hostility? How do we love across a difference without compromising our worldview, without acquiescing away in just unreserved acceptance through fear or just, or, or, or just railing and having nothing to do with it and then not being in a conversation? Well, I think we need to become, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we've got to be ambassadors of a countercultural narrative of redemption that is motivated by love. The church should be a place of refuge for the casualties of this progressive revolution. We must point others to the redemptive and healing, redemption and healing that's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must therefore be people who ourselves are not just intellectually informed about the gospel, but our hearts must have known its deep heart transformation. We must ourselves have encountered this grace of this gospel. We must believe in its greater promises of, of peace and hope. It's more satisfying desires of joy found in Jesus as our ultimate identity. We must be people who don't just sing majesty, but people who encounter majesty, whose lives are shaped by the grace of God in Jesus. It did exactly that. Just found us where we were. We sang it this morning. We sang empty-handed, but we were not. We were at war with God. We had a closed fist and grace met us right there. Met us in our own self-defined culture of rebellion. A loving response to the growing difference and divide will require us, will require the church to develop new skills, new skills of compassion, new skills of understanding as we encounter people for whom this culture has not provided the promises of peace and the promises of meaning and fulfillment that it promised. We don't need to be apologetic about our faith. We don't need to be aggressive about our faith and its message. What we actually need to become with our message is more compassionate, more compassionate towards those who hear it. Jesus had compassion. He had compassion on people who were the products of their, of their cultural narrative. Compassion is the ability to move towards someone that you disagree with for their own good and well-being. To hold truth out that can confront what's wrong and bring life-giving alternative while still valuing, while still just holding it with an open hand. All kinds of people engaged Jesus in his time on the earth. Some sought him out, others were sought by him. Some were marginalized minorities and some were powerful majorities. Some had their lives messed up by others and some had actually messed up their own lives. Some loathed Jesus and some actually lauded Jesus. But Jesus loved them all. He made time for them. He respected them all. He didn't always agree with them. Often we find Jesus in his conversations with them exposing their heart issues. But he always loved them. 
especially those who came as broken products of a baseless culture. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus applies a passage found in Isaiah 42.3 to himself. Andrew Walker points out that the imagery is important to remember and beautiful to see. Jesus will not let fragile people crumble or collapse beneath their weight of their struggles. He wants to take those who are close to flickering out and lead them into a new narrative, a new narrative in him where they are rekindled in brightness and in warmth. Our culture says that you need to do this, you need to find this from within yourself. Even though you've come to a point where you're broken and fatigued, you must still only find this from within yourself. You need to pick yourself up by your shoelaces. You are your own salvation. And Jesus is tender and gentle to those for whom culture has fatigued with its empty promises. He describes life with him as rest. And he invites those who are struggling and burdened with issues to come and enjoy his rest and to find peace for their souls. Jesus shaped Christianity and its transforming cultural narrative of new life in him as beginning with having compassion and love for people, laying aside our rights for the well-being of others. This is what it is to love across the difference. Paul tells us, In Philippians, the extent to which Jesus laid aside his rights. To love those who are at odds with him. And if we have had our story changed by Jesus, we must do likewise as we hold out this this gospel of redemption. Jesus himself said that God didn't send him into the world to condemn the world. We read that in John 3. The world has already done that by itself. The world is already condemned. The world already knows this. What the world needs is to be saved from itself. And Jesus came to save the world by giving an alternative that exposes the brokenness of human culture and offers a new life, a new life of abundancy by trusting in Jesus for joy. Romans 5 points out that this is God loving across the difference. This is God initiating love regardless of the outcome. In Romans 5 we read that God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That while we see enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son. Jesus is God's ultimate conversation with culture. It's the ultimate way that God has chosen, planned to redefine broken cultural narratives. And we find uh, Jesus, when we find Jesus confronted by people whose lives have been shaped and lived out of the prevailing, prevailing cultural nar- narratives, whether they are shapers of that culture, whether they are victims of that, we don't find him backing away in fearful concessions because he might hurt someone's feelings, nor do we find him pounding at them with uh, what we call doctrinal cruelty. We find Jesus listening. We find him drawing out the story. 
so that the one who already knows all things is actually taking time to sit and listen and hear all things and offer a radically different alternative to what's not working. In our series, Conversations with Jesus, we found Jesus time and time again just sitting and listening to people, hearing their stories, sad and tragic, proud and arrogant, and time and time again offering a new narrative of hope found in Him, in in trusting Him for life. Have relationships, have money, sexuality, power, self-fulfillment, Religion, the pursuit of goodness or the practice of depravity have pursuing those things as your ultimate identity left you feeling a little empty, left you broken, left you thinking, is this all there is? The woman at the well, Zacchaeus up a tree, rich man and his wealth, Pharisees deconstructing marriage, woman caught in adultery. They all sit across the the cultural divide to Jesus, all brought a different cultural position than the one Jesus actually demands. But all were heard and all were loved and all were told to redefine their lives around Jesus' words and Jesus' promises. And those who did became culture shapers themselves as they lived out a radically new life grounded in the promises that Jesus gave to them. Certainly the woman at the well embodies this out of all of them. Come, come, she says to her town. Come and see Jesus who knows every shady thing about me. But listened to me, understood me and loved me. And she converts a whole town. Well, Philip was like this. Before he ran up to that chariot, he had come to know Jesus. The details are not given of his conversation. The only description that we have of Philip is that he was a man full of the Spirit. Read that in Acts 6. He was someone who had undergone a cultural revolution of uh, the soul. From defining life in his own terms which no matter how good it may have been beforehand, is still sin to living life through the grace that is found in Jesus. Philip had been loved by Jesus, who had died for his sins, who had loved him across the difference. Philip heard that message, perhaps even seen it walking the dusty roads. And now Philip models that loving across the difference in his life. He's not one of the rock stars of the New Testament. He's not an apostle. He's not a Paul. He's just a plain lay person like you or like me before Jesus gets hold of us. And he lived out his Christian life by serving. At first thing we find him do is he thought he'd take on the easy job of loving across the difference of serving disgruntled, dissatisfied churchgoers. That is a tough cauldron to get into. But he just loved them. He made sure they were cared for. And then we find him, next thing we find Philip doing is he's sharing Jesus with Samaritans. A group of people that were shunned and pushed to the margins by mainstream religion. He's just sharing the story of Jesus with them. 
about how Jesus came, made this cultural revolution in his own heart. Would you like to, would you like to hear a little bit about it as we, as we talk about life together? And this, we read it in Acts 8, resulted in much joy in the city. There's a shift in culture just by sharing a story. Philip's approach to the cultural narrative of his day was neither vague, nor rude, nor mute. It was just simply hold out Jesus as an alternative and just kind of wait and see what God's going to do. Well, Philip had some traits that I think we can apply to our own lives as we wrestle with and as we speak into our own culture. The first thing we, we learn about Philip is that he is sensitive. He's sensitive to the Spirit. God's prompting of his heart. All through this passage, you, feel, you hear the Holy Spirit just directing Philip what, where to go and what to do. The whole thing's controlled by the Spirit. And, and Philip is a man whose heart is sensitive to that. Philip understands that God wants us to engage with people. So he is just looking, waiting. This takes place when we ourselves are actually engaged with God, when we're in a good and healthy relationship with God. We are sensitive to the Spirit. Second thing we learn about Philip is he's available. Availability is the co-pilot, the sensitivity, if you like. Philip is literally shooting the lights out in Samaria. He has a great ministry going there. City is in joy. Probably looking at a book deal maybe on how to transform a city or some mega church down the road or something or other. But God says, leave this successful ministry and head on down this lonely, dusty road. Doesn't even tell him where he's going, what he's going to do. He just says, go. But Philip's available. And we see that Philip is lovingly obedient He's proactive. As the Spirit leads, he obediently responds. He runs up to the chariot. Obedience flows out of a willingness to love across difference. Philip does not sit there going, I I don't know if I I should just do that. I, I, I know you told me to go there. This guy's got nothing in common with me. In fact, under the right conditions, we could be enemies. But not knowing how he's going to be received, not knowing how this meeting's going to go, Philip just runs up to that chariot. If you don't love people, if you don't have an obedience in your heart to be sensitive and available to go and love people, you're going nowhere, you're shaping no culture. When Philip gets there, he's something else. He's tactful. When he gets to the Ethiopian official, he doesn't just unload a whole heap of doctrine on this guy, a whole heap of ethics and a whole heap of behavior modifications that this guy needs. No, he listens. He asks questions. He spends time with him. He hears his story. His initial questions are gracious and gentle. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip is explicit and exact. Philip just shares Jesus with this dude 
and explains who Jesus is, how he fits into the world scene, and how he fits into the personal scene. You cannot do this if you are unfamiliar with the story yourself. You cannot do this if you are unfamiliar with a relationship with Jesus yourself. Before we can uh, shift or hope to change just one expression of culture, we must first have undergone a cultural revolution in our own heart. We must first be in a relationship. We must first have, have had this story, cultivate and nurture our own hearts in order to be able to just hear someone's story and then, and then to be able to make sense of that story with Jesus. And then finally what we find out about Philip is he is decisive. He acts on the transformation that that story of Jesus has had on this man's heart. When the gospel about Jesus has landed on the heart of a person and changed it, caused a cultural revolution in that person, so that that person no longer finds their ultimate identity in this man. It could have been his ethnicity. It could have been his position of power. He's the treasurer uh, to, the, to, the, to the mother of the, of the king. He, it, it could have been seen in his, in his wealth and power. He's a very rich man. It could have been in the expression of uh, his sexuality, whether that's chosen or imposed on him. But when that shifted to find its identity in Jesus, it's time to go public with that. Baptism represents the pub- publicly what has already happened inwardly. There's no getting around this. The gospel about Jesus has changed and transformed this man. You don't get baptized unless it has. So everything that he wants thought made him who he is he has died to and now he is something else as we said he's a brother to philip he's a son of god he's in fellowship with jesus if your life has been transformed by the gospel about jesus then be decisive about it the first act of discipleship is baptism baptism is the declaration that of a new culture in a person's heart as i said out set out at the beginning we live in some pretty challenging times where the tide of our culture is is flowing hard against our faith hard against our worldview a worldview that that has objective truth in it a worldview that says the the only trust in jesus saves you from sin and its consequences a faith that, that values community shaping over individual expression, that says your sexuality is not your highest form of fulfillment and identity. There is something greater to anchor your life in. And if we want to hold a conversation with a culture that runs hard against that, we have to first know who it is that we are bringing to the table. We have to ourselves first be shaped by Jesus. We have to have our values shaped by Jesus. We have to have our marriages shaped by Jesus. We have to have our sexuality shaped by the gospel. Our work practices, our relationships, they can't just be intellectual and academic. They have to be deep heart scripts in us. We have to be Christians. And then as we go, which is the command of 
Jesus in Matthew 28 into the cultural environments that God has actually placed every single one of you intentionally in. That's what Paul says in Acts 17. Let us approach the conversation like our boy Philip here with a bold sensitivity to what God is uh, shaping in us to shape in others. A sensitivity to the Spirit of God. Like when you hear that little voice that says, Hey, hey, why don't you just just have a chat with this person? Don't be fearful of where that's going to lead. To be available and obedient. These are the attributes of willingness to love across difference. To be tactful. You don't shift anyone's heart by being a jerk. Colossians 4 or 5 says, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Let your speech be seasoned with salt. That salt is the explicity of truth. And it's held out with an open hand, a gracious hand. And finally, be decisive. Celebrate it. When God works in someone's heart, we, we celebrate it. It's not easy. But that's what church is for. That's what this morning's about. We are here to help shape each other, to build each other up, to share our common faith in Christ. I am telling you right now, if you think you can do that in splendid isolation, you have got no hope against this culture. You cannot be a Christian in this world and not come to church. And I don't care where you go, just go to a church that preaches Jesus. But if you are lazy in that, if you are willing just to let that slide, and obviously I'm talking to the wrong people, but you are shaping nothing, you are going nowhere, and you are prepared to not love across a difference. We come together to strengthen, to build up, to encourage and equip ourselves. This is not some religious duty. This is us as a family doing life together. This is where we celebrate the culture that Jesus creates, the new community that he's building that then goes out into the world. And just a story to finish with. In the 4th century when Julian, the, the, the emperor, they called him Julian the Apostate because he wanted to shift culture, the whole of culture of the Roman Empire. He had become Christian. And now Julian called him the apostate because he wants to shift it radically back to a pagan culture. And he found that extremely difficult to do. One of the main reasons he found it hard to do was because Christians just kept loving across the difference. As people persecuted them, as people tried to marginalize them and make them irrelevant, they just kept turning up with Jesus. The Roman Emperor Julian, writing in the 4th century, writes, regarding the pro, he regrets the process of Christianity, as in he regrets that Christianity has become the norm. Because it's pulled the people away from Roman gods, from paganism, from a culture that he wanted to advance, from a culture of rampant individuality, sexual kind of craziness, whatever. And he says this, he said, atheism, that is Christian, Christianity, because Christians 
believe in a God that couldn't be seen, not the many gods of the pantheon, they're atheists, has been, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not for their own poor but for ours as well. Whilst those who belong to us look in vain. While those who belong to our promises, our, our new culture we're trying to create, look in vain for help that we should render them. As our culture leaves people looking in vain for meaning and hope, as the promises it makes turn to dust, let us be ready to share and practice the story of Jesus who brings a cultural revolution to a person's heart. And as it does, it just, it just ripples out. And we, we just change in culture. One little story at a time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we don't need to be overwhelmed uh, by this culture that rages against us. We think of the prayer of Jesus in John 17, that we are in the world but not of the world, that we are, we are here to be people who um, share your story. Uh, as, as the story of the world fails, as it turns to dust, would we be willing uh, to love across the differences not to get bent out of shape by things that we think are wrong and, in, and, and immoral, but to be able to sit with people and just offer an alternative narrative. Say to people, how, how is your story working for you? Can I tell you about mine? And that we would be like Philip, just sensitive to your spirit, just doing what you call us to do and then just getting out of the way that you might work in the lives of people. And would we, be, would we just be diligent about gathering here every week to to nurture and encourage and equip each other to be able to go and do this. Lord, we thank you that uh, you're a God who doesn't leave us in rampant individualism, but you bring us together as family, as brothers and sisters. And uh, this morning your people gather to give you praise and say thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for making us your adopted children and, uh, and just bringing this life to us. And we pray these things and give thanks for them in Jesus' name. Amen.